You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. I'm Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Rob Cross, who is a professor at Babson College. He's also the co-founder of uh, Connected Commons, which is, uh, I guess it's kind of a consulting slash research organization that's been working with many companies for many years on a lot of the topics that you write about in books, such as the most recent book called Beyond Collaboration Overload. But you've also got a bunch of others, The Hidden Power of Social Networks, The Great Man is Dead, I love that one, and Flip Your Thinking, among others. Welcome, Rob. Thank you so much for having me here, Greg. I appreciate it. It's kind of paradoxical when you see this book on Beyond Collaboration Overload, because I think if you were to describe the trends and movements in management and organizational uh, behavior, organizational design in the last like 10, 20 years, it seems like the entire thrust of managerial initiatives have been around encouraging collaboration. We've been busting down silos. We've been flattening hierarchies. We've been, you know, creating all these dotted line relationships. We've been promoting brainstorming. We've been promoting hackathons, the servant leader who is someone with an open door and you can continuously communicate with them and they listen to everybody. And those are the things that are supposed to be the virtues of good leaders and, and of good organizations. And I think what you're saying is that, well, hold on a second. If we're not careful, those things can backfire and cause organizations to essentially grind to a halt and leaders to burn out and become useless. Right. And so it's important to, for me to say that when I'm thinking about collaboration, I'm not thinking about that concept that we all have in our mind of a group sitting in a team room and generating the great idea, right? That kind of teamwork and way of interacting is essential, right? It's critical to how innovations evolve, how we deliver things greater than our own abilities for clients or markets or other things like that. What I'm more focused on is just the degree to which all the collaborative demands on people have accelerated over the past decade. And it's a product of things you're saying, right? We've had all the consulting firms come in and take layers out of the hierarchy because they're trying to promote agility, assuming it's just the up and down of the decision cycles that are hurting us. We have multiple collaborative technologies that have washed through the landscape and to the point where most of the leaders that I spoke with through this work, they're managing across nine platforms, collaborative platforms to get their work done. And you think, oh my God, that can't be true. You start thinking about it and it's like, oh, we got email, we got IM, we got Slack channels, we got team spaces, we've got a gratitude application somebody threw in there and all these inexpensive things that looks easy and, and makes sense on the surface. But we've evolved it to a point where pre-pandemic, people were spending 85% or more generally of their time in these collaborative activities, right? Phone, email, you know, messaging. That number's gone up five to eight hours through the pandemic and people are working earlier into the morning, deeper into the night. So. The issue isn't collaboration as a principle. There is an idea of how to get things done. It's learning how to understand the people that are successful at it today. And so that's really what I studied there is who are those people that are able to be about a day a week more efficient. They're the high performers. They're happier in all sorts of metrics we looked at and really understanding what are they doing? How are they managing this? Because for a lot of people, this has become a, a source of burnout, stress, other things like that. And we're really trying to gear around what do we learn from these people <laughs> that have really figured it out on both levels. Economists always focus on, on trade-offs, right? And so here we can talk about trade-off between 
solitary deep work and then collaborative work. And that's presupposing that we're along some frontier and solitary deep work is super important for certain types of tasks and collaboration is important for other types of tasks. But I think that you're digging a little bit deeper. You're not simply talking about kind of collaboration versus non-collaboration. I think you're building on your insights in, in network science to talk about, well, it's the people that you are interacting with, and then it's the activities that you're engaging in when you're interacting with people. And are they fruitful interactions? Have you curated your network properly? And, and I think sometimes just people think, well, the broader the network, the larger the number of people, the wider I cast my net, the better. There has to be some order or structure or coherence or thought that goes into this, right? Yeah. And that idea couldn't be further from the truth. We find analytically that a, a big network is not the thing that's distinguishing the high performers only in really transactional stuff like residential real estate sales. Does knowing a ton of people pay off rather what we're showing is, and we're using this infinity loop model for the listeners here, where on one side of this infinity loop, we could see that the, one of the huge distinguishers of them, what I call the successful people. And I'll keep referencing that because I wasn't just studying high performers. I was focused on who are the people that are outperforming across 300 organizations and are scoring higher on measures of thriving, resilience, well-being, career satisfaction, just a ton of ways we've looked at this. So I'm calling them successful people because they're outperforming and they're sustainable and how they're doing it. They're not in these points that are burning out or unsustainable that we see so many people fall into. And what we could see is one of the hallmarks of those people was not the size of the network, but the efficiency of it. And so they were engaged in a couple of activities that enabled them to get back 18 to 24% of their time. And that's one side of the loop is how do you free up that space? But then really critically, another side is what do you do with that time? And I can't emphasize the importance of that. Like everybody, they get focused in on this is, oh my gosh, how do I get back, you know, a day a week? And then I can talk to that, but it's a losing proposition if you don't then use that time differently. Part of the problems of the pandemic right now we're going through is pre-pandemic we had let's say eight one-hour meetings, and then somebody through the pandemic got a great idea. Well, let's just do them 30 minutes. That sounded great for a minute until we suddenly have 16 30-minute meetings in that same day. And it's exhausting, right? You're more intense in that moment. The switching costs are harder for us mentally. And we end the day with a to-do list based not on eight meetings, but 16, and it doesn't work. So that idea of buying time back has to be complemented. Well, what are these people doing that's really unique about how they're getting scale? and accomplishing things separately. So could not agree more because what I'm actually finding is these people are not collaborating less, right? They're more efficient in what they're doing. They're producing results at scale. And it's that interplay that, that's really distinguishing them today. Now, one of the things you say in the book is that, you know, people aren't trained in social capital. You know, I think I'm an educator, so I teach MBAs and participate in kind of curriculum design and stuff. And so one of the things I hope we'll talk about over the rest of the podcast is is there really this gap between kind of what people need to know in order to be good managers and what they think they need to know or what they are learning or what educators think they need to know? And, and, you know, I guess educators, they only want to teach things that are built on social science. And I guess a lot of people are, are skeptical about some of the things that are super practical because maybe the social science is not as well developed as some of the other things that we have in our toolbox. One of the things that every economist knows is this idea of the tragedy of the commons. And, and I loved how you referenced that when you're talking about these managers, these leaders who really are very well-intentioned and they think that they're doing a good job, 
but in fact, they're rendered ineffective by doing the things that they think they, they should be doing. So I was wondering if you could walk through how this depletion of managerial yeah. talent gets happens because of these well-intentioned things. Yeah. Yeah. So when I look at organizations, I'm applying network analysis and we're going in and mapping who's interacting with whom. And I can do this looking at groups of a couple thousand up to groups of 80, 90,000, if it's a massive restructuring or large culture change program or things like that. So there is a, a real depth in the analytics behind this that we've used to say what's predicting the more successful people that we've then complemented with hundreds and hundreds of interviews to develop the practices out of it. But what the focal point in there for me is when I create these analytics and I'm able to say typically three to 5% of the people absorb 20 to 35% of the collaborative demands in most of these groups we've looked at. And those are the ones that oftentimes are getting overwhelmed and overconsumed, and it can be driven by a whole bunch of different things. So one of the big problems today is organizations are designed and they're being heavily influenced by these consulting processes that are saying, you're going to get agile if you just take layers out, or you're going to get agile if you, you know, just form a bunch of scrums and kind of have people go after it. When you actually look at it in the network, that's not true, that you create this implosion of collaborative demands that introduce their own inefficiency. So let's just take the one I just said, three to 5% of the people, 20 to 35% of the, the demand from a collaborative standpoint, the people that can't get to those people are slow, right? They're not getting their stuff done. In fact, when, what we find is that the people around the overwhelmed leaders, and we have quantitative ways of looking at that, they're one study we showed up to 200% more likely to leave because they can't, you know, get through. So that's not seen in, in the conventional hierarchy, but it's in the network. So there's design issues that create this, right? Because we're designing and task A and task B look the same. We create roles around that or levels or whatever. But if task A requires you to coordinate with eight people that are all generally in the same neighborhood and task B is two people in different geographies, two people that are reporting to different leaders in a matrix design and they have different incentives and then two leaders that don't like each other, just <laughs> hypothetically, those are weeks of difference in time. You know what I mean? To get consensus and to get buy-in, to get, you know, everything done to, to create momentum. But we don't see it. The, the task looks the same, right, on a project plan. And this kind of collaborative footprint of the work has become invisible. So that's one thing that's over-consuming people. Is leaders are making assignments without really understanding as work has shifted this footprint and how it's different for different things. The second thing, and, and probably the one that surprised me the most that I didn't see coming, was the degree to which we're our own worst enemy. is is way more than I thought in this game. So when I started all these interviews, I was absolutely convinced that overload, the enemy was out there. It was emails, time zones, nasty bosses, demanding clients. And I came out the other end, completely convinced that we create our own problems. And it's actually not what we think sometimes when I do these analytics and you look in these networks and you see these overwhelmed people, the knee jerk reaction, if you ask your students, they would all say, oh, that's a control freak, right? That's a micromanager to that position because they can't let go and they should delegate. And it just, it's about true for maybe 10% of the overwhelmed. People get in these positions also because they're servant-based mindset to leadership, to reference something you were talking about, right? And you find that people that just deeply see helping as the core of being a good colleague and being a good leader, if they help directly, they eventually create themselves as the path of least resistance for too much. And they, that'll eventually lead to a point of overwhelm. And it's insidious beyond belief because it actually feels good right up until it doesn't, right? You feel like you're doing what you should be doing. The system's reacting around you. Everything's positive right up until you lose a key employee or significant other says no more, whatever it is that you've hit it. 
But so you're saying it's not just that they're refusing to say no to stuff. A lot of times it's portrayed as, oh, hey, you need to start saying no. It's also that they volunteer. They say, oh, let me help you out. Or, you know, let me become a part of this discussion or this conversation. And they interject themselves. Yeah. Huge, huge problem. Yeah. In fact, in the book, I was describing a lot about this guy, Scott, that's disguised, but I watched his career where he just shot a meteoric rise and then faltered and almost lost his job and his marriage in large part because of this, and then made some adjustments and got back out. But that was what he did. He would see these things evolve over emails and feel this pressure to jump in and say, we should think about this and not micromanaging. He desperately wanted his team to know he was there. I'm here and I'm contributing. And what that did though, is he always only had part of the issue. So suddenly the group was managing the issue and Scott, and that meant more meetings coming back to him, sometimes four, six, eight weeks out. But he couldn't even see the connection between what he'd done and the overload that he was having until we were tracing it back and looking at it. And so for other people, it's exactly what you said. There's this tendency, not even to be asked, but to jump in and say, let me help with this. And people had to develop heuristics that saying yes means saying no. I'm jumping in here, but I'm losing long-term professional aspirations or personal objectives or whatever. And so we see that there are, I've come to call them triggers and write about them in one of the chapters about nine of these tend to be the most common things I see that lead people to jump into things that they shouldn't be, right? And it actually causes them their own problems. So it's much deeper than just don't collaborate or just say no. These are deep kind of triggers that are built up through us through school. Unfortunately, what you and I do as educators, I think we create these contexts where kids feel like they have to be right in the moment and be pithy with their comments. And it's not really what creates success today. You know what I mean? It's different kind of out there. So that was a big surprise for me because I, I just didn't expect it to see it at the magnitude that we do create our own challenges sometimes. But then it also shapes the people that are in that kind of sphere because then they start waiting for or listening for or they're looking for that approval or that, that go ahead or they sort of become codependent on this dysfunction. And what they really need is they, they need to be held accountable, but there has to be some delegation that takes place, right? And that's what happens exactly the challenge. And that's why a lot of the pure time management books don't work because they're not factoring in that second part of the system. You know what I mean? So I could go to people and what I've learned in this game is that you don't go to a busy person and say, delegate, you have to delegate. Cause what we do is we think of the three or four things that cognitively we can conjure up in our mind that are driving us crazy. And they're usually the really big things that are kind of intractable. And the only person you can delegate those to are the two people you delegated the past eight things to who are already over. Well, that's what you, you know, they say that if you want to get something done, you know, ask a busy person, right? <laughs> and that, you know, it's just propagating it. I've watched this in different ways. When people just say, oh, I'm going to delegate, it kind of moves somebody else up the list. And what the magic in this game is, I, I call it a, more of a brawl than a ballet. And the people that are successful at it, they're looking for and using devices to remind them of the small things that they can't remember at the end of the day. They just fight through all these small things. Feels like just what you do as a human being, right? But you end the day exhausted and can't quite put your finger on it. So very tactically get people to look back four months. They're looking through their email calendar and then select portions of their role. You can't look back last week because you justify everything, right? They were critically important. But when you create some space in there, everybody that's been in an organization for some period of time starts to see informational domains they're getting pulled into that they just don't need to be the expert in anymore decisions they're getting pulled into that are just expectations that just don't make sense right anymore and portions of their role that they can shift and what that means is that leaders start looking for again not the two or three big things but 
five or six categories of small that they don't give to their next most busy person, but to the talent two layers out. And so they're taking the demands off the center and they're pulling in talent in a unique way, getting them better engaged. And that works better, especially if they get in a room and the leader says, here are the five things that I'm not going to ask for. I need a feedback loop on, but, and to your point, here are the five things you need to take courageous action on. You can't just push me back slowly into this with these quick emails saying, I'm just checking quickly <laughs> or it, it doesn't work because it is a mutual system there that, that you have to break depending on what's going on. So, you know, I teach this course on HR and when you talk to a lot of people in that domain, they seem to think at least anecdotally that there's a, an increase in kind of burnout or an increase in overwork, an increase in people experiencing high degrees of stress, uh, which flows back to problems in their personal lives and so forth. And I think a lot of them, they blame technology. They say, well, hey, you know, it's all because of Slack and, and, and WhatsApp and email and all of this. And, and I think your argument is, well, yes and no. I mean, the, the technology, of course, is an enabler. Really, it, it has a lot to do with the perspective that people bring to their workplace, but also the way in which the, the workplace is organized, right? I mean, it's partially not just the responsibility of the individual to know right, how to manage all this, but it's partially the job of the organization to keep tabs on this. Yeah. I, I love how you're saying that because there's, there are two thrusts in this. Now, my book was very much focused on what are those people doing, the individuals, and that's critical without a doubt. And it's going to continue to be critical, no matter how we think about return to office strategies, it's going to have less structure around it, physical space, other things like that. And I, at that level, and let me come, I want to come back to the organizational one for a second, but at that level, one of the most amazing things to me is the reality is we have more ability to shape what we do and who we do it with than probably any time in history of mankind. And yet we give it up very quickly. We let the systems take over. And I would see this so clearly as we went into COVID kind of six weeks, eight weeks in, I was part of a bunch of these surveys that the large vendors were putting out. And I it had some questions on connectivity in there. But then I convinced many of them to put in these open-ended questions around, just tell me what's experience like. We've never seen anything societally like this. Like, what are you learning? What's the impact on you? And normally as an academic, you do this stuff and you, with big surveys like that, you may get a page or two of open-ended answers. Nobody fills this stuff out. But in this case, we're getting hundreds of pages and they were really thoughtful answers, but they took two completely different paths. The first set that I'd be going down looking through is, thank heavens, I don't have my commute anymore. I've got two, two and a half hours of my day back. I'm eating better, sleeping more. Significant other likes me. Children are talking to me, whatever it is. It's like, thank the Lord, I figured this out, <laughs> you know, and I've got this space back. And then the very next one would be equally passionate to be like, where did my commute go? <laughs> I can't, that was the only time I had to think I've got to get this back in my life. It's killing me. And for that second group, it's not the commute. It's that they gave up control of the situation pretty quickly. And they didn't have really clear anchors around, here's what's important to me personally with this time or whatever it may be. And I think like at that level, it's going to be a critical capability for people as we go forward to be really clear on how do you create the space you need greatest humans? And then also what do you do with it? Right? What's, what's Well, before we get into the organizational piece, I think you described how most of the time when people learn how to be more efficient or they learn how to whatever, zero email, whatever, what all they're doing is just freeing up more time for even more like email, right? So the tyranny of the to-do list is such that the more efficient you get at dealing with stuff, the more stuff you get. And if you're not very conscious and intentional about 
setting out these boundaries and making sure that the, the new space that you've created is filled with something that's more fruitful and productive, it will ultimately just yeah, at work and outside of work, right? Both domains being really clear. I would see overload hit people in kind of two ways. One would be just these surges, right? A big project hits promotion, things that there's a definable beginning and, and hopeful end point that you figure out, right? You work your way through it. That didn't bother me so much as this, what I call a slow burn, where people are just incrementally getting faster and faster and the system is to your point, reacting back to them <laughs> faster and faster. And the stories were not great. Like you have to imagine, I've been through 600 plus interviews now in this all non-balance between women and men, all conventionally successful people. And some of the stories were just horrendous. People describing waking up one day, they, a flight got canceled. They pulled back into their garage, suddenly realized their kids were out of the house. Their spouse had other hobbies. They had no friends left because they'd spun up in the system for five to eight years. And it felt great in the moment, right? You're pursuing revenue targets. You're one woman described eight years in a place and thought she had great friends. Her mother died. Nobody showed up at the funeral. And it just, it's eye-opening to hear this number of people describe things like that, where they're spending three, five, eight years in these systems and then wake up one day and go, no, I, I really need some clarity on kind of what's important and how to pull in that direction. Is this good for the companies, right? I mean, we had trouble abolishing slavery because slavery paid. The slave owners were making tons of money off of slavery. I think we, in, in the HR world, we like to think that healthy employees are going to lead to more profitable enterprises. But there's a lot of evidence that when these folks burn out, then they're going to be hard to replace and so forth. And what, what was puzzling, you know, your story about Scott, which was interesting to me was that, you know, they were like, Hey, we're about to fire this guy. Like, why aren't there, why aren't there more kind of early warning signs? Why isn't there more of an effort? I, I think of this as operations, right? So if the empty Coke bottles are piling up on the assembly line and the, the juice is spraying all over the factory floor, like normally the alarm bells go off and you got to go in and, and reshuffle things. So if you're, if you have these decision-making bottlenecks that are causing everything to go haywire and then the machine's about to frazzle and you have to get rid of it, like, why wouldn't you want to stop that? Why aren't companies doing more to do this? Yeah. I and mean, I think it, I, it, at the heart of it, I think it's a lack of the right analytics for how our organizations have evolved. It, just roughly speaking, for most people, I was saying 85% of their time is in collaborative work, email, IM, all the things we talked about. And yet we don't have mechanisms to see where that time is going and manage that, the work that's allocated or to understand how people are spending that time. We can track expenses down to two decimal places, right? And argue over a dinner receipt or whatever it may be. But the magnitude of that and the invisibility of it is really tremendous. And I, f I find this all the time. Like I go back into organizations, if they're thinking about a restructuring or they're worried about a certain individual or groups of individuals and you show them and you say, look, this isn't sustainable. Like what you've created, the role you've created by common laws of physics does not work, right? With these multiple matrix dimensions and other things. And people change their mind immediately. They're like, yeah, you're right. This didn't work. And I think in Scott's case, the knee-jerk reaction in a situation like that is you see a leader, they're faltering, the scores are going down. And you say, you know what you say, he wasn't ready. He wasn't who we thought. Or if you pull him in from the outside, it's, oh, he's not us. And, or she, obviously. In that case, they had the evidence to kind of say, and then the CEO had a, the insight to say, you know what, maybe it's that. And it's a horrible thing, right? When it happens, because that person gets stigmatized and it generally is going to go somewhere else. They're not going to wait five, eight, 10 years to, to get another shot at something. 
And then with the analytics, it became really obvious what was going on and what the, the solutions needed to be. So I think that's one of the big challenges that we have going forward is leaders are, they're shooting blind too much right now and making decisions and restructurings. I was on two different calls today with top teams talking about this and the significance of it that gets created with your Coke bottle. You're spraying everywhere, but nobody really sees it, right? It's this, you keep this persona and this face on and the way you see it is in the attrition. It used to be that when people couldn't get connected enough in these networks, that was the biggest driver of attrition. Now our models are showing it's very bimodal. It's those people that can't breathe in, but it's also the overwhelmed. And you know, what human capital experts often miss is that attrition event when it happens, it costs way more than just the acquisition of those people. You know what I mean? When they look at cost turnover, it's the network that gets disrupted. And it's very easy to calculate economics on that, that, that show the severity of that in some instances when these well-connected people take off. Well, I was talking to Ben Weber uh, a couple months ago, uh, developing sensors or feelers that where you can get a picture of, okay, how are communications happening? How are decisions happening? And one would think that now with so much remote work and so much stuff happening through these communication tools that we would be able to, hell, we're instrumenting entire assembly lines with cameras. And we know exactly where the UPS box is at every moment in time. So why wouldn't we be able to track where a decision is at a given moment in time or how people are communicating and interacting and, and so forth? Is it just that we, it's too new. We just haven't really thought about it too much or. There's a lot of issues and funny, I, I'm on, I talked to Ben a good amount, right? We're in very similar spaces. And my last interaction was with him and five or six other people that look at passive analytics like that. And, and it was such a, I've never seen anybody as fired up as Ben was around the, the ethical implications of it and really starting to think about, gosh, there can be different reasons that people are to these points and these networks. And suddenly if we're directing to, you know, creating algorithms that people are acting on, even if we're not saying, go do this, right. They form their own impressions. He was very concerned about that. And so I like had my, had so much respect for the way he was coming at it and how he was thinking about it and what they're doing at Humanize because of that, that I think is awesome. But those are real implications, right? So we have technically companies for years have been able to mine emails, right? They're the property of the companies, but the social implications of it have been a big deal. And then more recently, the legal and privacy implications. So yeah, but I mean, even if you just gave someone, like you have these health interventions where you just fill out a survey or whatever, and you fill out your BMI and they're like, oh, you should do this. I mean, you, if you could somehow just realize, like you talked about biased learning and you talked about how people tend to be influenced by the people around them rather than seeking out the people whose influence is best. You could presumably identify that very quickly with the push of a button be like, oh my gosh, like I've only talked to the same four people. Yeah. And we know like that's been one of the ones that has driven me a little bit crazy and I'm not going to mention vendors, but there've been a lot of these that are looking at passive analytics and there's challenges with the sensor devices because they require being in the same space, generally speaking. So I've had good success with them on oil rigs, with call centers, you know what I mean? Things like that, where people are in, in close enough proximity that you can do things with. And some of those are fascinating, right? Cause they've evolved from just things that, that kind of connected to things that are measuring physiology now. And so I can see Greg stressing me out, right? <laughs> in this interaction or whatever. And so it's pretty powerful. The things you can do if you have that proximity ability. But beyond that, if we're looking at things like passive analytics, like email, calendaring data, other things like that, I couldn't agree more. Like there are certain 
uses of that for the individual that are wildly powerful. We know that, for example, one of the biggest derailers of people is if they rise in an organization and continue to hold with 60, 70% of their trusted ties back where they came from. It just starts to shape what they think is important. They suddenly have blind spots built in that they're not aware of that a simple, like you say, push of a button and not showing this Greg, not talking to Rob, but just showing it in bubble charts, right? Here's a sphere of that's important to you that you're not leaning into as much as you should. All that should be completely possible. Now we do that ourselves in the tools that we've built, but we're using survey-based engines so that people can kind of get both levels of output there. So I think that'll be a big deal. And I think I already know of different things that are happening in the health sensor space to really think about stress and some other things a little bit differently, but it's going to take a while, I think, still <laughs> to evolve there. Well, in, in, you know, kind of the, the people operations or strategic practical management space, you talk about meeting science, you talk about interruption science, and there's an email science, right? These are super interesting and practical areas of research, but they haven't really made it into a curriculum. And I'm just thinking that at my business school, a course on meeting science might be a lot more useful than right, some of the right. classes that, that we offer. There's not enough researchers available in this space. What, why? Well, it, it's not the researchers. It's the, you're going to really get me going, but I'm going to let loose. It's, <laughs> the, it's that the academics have gotten so far talking to each other and they've built out mechanisms that reward things that have become very theoretical. When I started this 23 years ago, I was thinking I wanted to be the academic that bridged practice and academia. It was feasible back then, but now with the war of, you know, methods and the finite contributions of theory that count for these eight-tier journals, it's just driven a separation out there. And so I couldn't agree more. That's why I love Bobson. And it's why I moved there is you see these kids getting taught some stuff they need versus the, one of the, uh, the schools I was affiliated with earlier, there was an entire course built around calculating the weighted average cost of capital, a whole course. And you know that these kids go into organizations and they're all excited to show how they can do it. And then they're told, no, it's 15% here. And it's great knowledge, but pretty useless in the moment. And I think we've, at some point, there's got to be an accounting for that and a shift back to say, here's what's needed. Because that's, I think, more of what we see is that kids need to learn how to move quickly, how to do other things to be successful in these places. Well, what is the optimal balance? My dad went to, got his MBA in NYU in the fifties. And I think at that point it was really viewed as a bunch of kind of business people telling war stories. And then along came management science and along came operations research and along came financial economics. And that put a bit more academic respectability into business schools. But I think some would argue that maybe we've gotten a little too far. I mean, is it, how important is it that you what do you get out of having one foot in academia and one foot in this rich world of, of consulting? Is it more that you can bring kind of research insights into the consulting practice, or is it also equally important that you can take your contact with business people and bring it back into the research? Yes. Yeah, so I, I think it's actually both. I think they inform each other and I actually, believe it or not, people sometimes look at the commons and they they think we're doing a lot of consulting and we, we don't really, we actually build tools that from the research that enable the companies to take action on the findings. And so my deal with the group is we raise a certain amount of money every year, but I've, I've never touched a penny in it. Everything goes back into funding the research and then building tools that they can put into action. As an example, we did a lot of work on this collaborative overload idea and figured out, okay, there's 25 things that create efficiencies for people 
we built that into a diagnostic. We've had over a hundred thousand people come through and take that. I put it in HBR, other things, since we've had a lot of people come through. And what that thing does is people take the assessment, but then they have ideas fed back to them around what I can go do. That assessment then all of a sudden gave us insights on men and women are different at this. And there are things that we can do to think about millennials a little bit differently and how they fall into this trap versus other people. So to me, that's the nature of the give back. So when I'm doing this work, it's very rigorous. It's rigorous by standards 20 years ago in terms of the quantitative stuff and things like that, but it's applied to a different audience. You know what I mean? It's applied to how do we build something that helps you as an individual or a leader see a phenomenon differently, take action on it and move ahead. But they, again, to your point, they go hand in hand, right? Like I'm providing something back that's far more than just people telling stories. It's very heavily analytically and research-based. But the fact that I talk to all these organizations is what lets me get the research to begin with. I can go in and say, I need to talk to 20 of your most successful leaders because of X, Y, and Z. And I'm saying it in a way that they resonate with and not in a purely theoretical way, or I wouldn't get the access ultimately. So it's an interesting interplay. I've thought a lot about kind of that, that lets this happen. Now, there was a lot that you talked about with respect to establishing norms and productive norms around meetings and emails and so forth. And there's only so much you can do just sort of as an individual telling people, hey, this is how I do it. How can leaders change those norms? Would it make sense to have formal policies? Would it make sense? Amazon has defining principles like, you know, disagree and commit and so forth. They also have a very specific way of doing meetings, which is not baked into the, their organizing principles. It's just a cultural thing. How can you change those norms around emails and around meetings and, and around how people interact with each other? Yeah, it's a great question. So for me, and I think for, you know, especially the audience you have here, what I'm always focused on is there are principles, right? And we've done analytics at big organizations and things. I can't name the names of companies, but they would say, okay, we're only going to have X kinds of people in a given meeting and that sort of thing. You can start to actually see quantitatively, what are the practices that we want to institutionalize? But what I really see, you know, let's assume that you're not in that C-suite level and kind of taking action there. When I see the more successful people in these organizations, they don't tend to look at email and say, well, you know what? I can't control all of email, so I'm not even going to try. They'll look at it and say, you know what? My team generates about 50% of the email I have to process and I can't influence that sphere. And so they'll sit down and say, not what am I doing, but they'll say, what are four or five norms we want to adhere to? So as an example, if you have to write email at 10 o'clock at night, because that's the only time you have, don't send it. Because if you send it, then you're starting a 10.02 response, 10.05, 10.07, and it's propagating the always on culture, send it on a delay, right? The next morning it goes out. Or you don't write emails that are nine paragraphs long where you're hiding what you want in the eighth, bullet point format, whatever it may be. So I find an incredibly easy thing to do that yields far more time. People are surprised by this all the time is you get a blank piece of paper, you draw three columns down it or put it up on a virtual space so you can get your team together if that's how you're doing things today. And you list in the first column, here are all the ways we're collaborating. So it's email, it's instant messaging, it's the team space, it's Zoom calls, whatever it may be. Then the second column is identify as a group, right? Four or five things we wanna do, like positive norms we wanna follow against each of these things. And then the third column is four or five things you don't want to do, the things you want to stop. It takes no more than an hour to do. You have consensus in it and you get efficiencies back really quickly because people just say, okay, we're not going to CC all. We're going to have some ideas around that or we're not going to write 
eight paragraph emails. <laughs> Here's how we're going to operate. And you also get the new people up to speed on this quickly. The number of leaders I would talk to when I started this game and, and I would say, well, do you use email for that? Oh no, we get off email when you have the second disagreement or whatever. You go to a richer medium. So that's a great norm. I was like, well, how did new people figure that out? Oh, they figured out, you know what I mean? And there's no like consistency in it, but if you could raise that game for everybody, it, it has a big impact. So that's, it's a super simple device and people come would laugh at it, but it has enormous impact on getting agreement on how we're collaborating and securing some of that time back in places. That loop that you have, right? Part of it is about mm -hmm. kind of clawing back some time. And then part of it is redeploying that time in a better way. And, and I think it also has to do with, um, rearranging your network and focusing on what you call non-insular networks. And I think that was the whole idea of non-insular networks was really the underlying theory behind flattening the hierarchies and, and breaking down the silos. How should we think about building out these non-insular networks? It sounds to me like you're just adding on even more kind of demands. It's like, oh, wait, I got yeah. to reach out to all those yeah. people as well as, as what I'm doing now. And oh, and then you say, cultivate serendipity. What am I supposed to, but I got to set aside an hour in my day to like, go be serendipitous, right? You would not believe the number of people that actually do things like yeah. that, <laughs> that they manufacture it. It was funny. I mean, that totally caught me off guard too, when I went through this, but yeah, it's a really good question. And that's why the book is laid out the way it is. And when I'm talking to leaders, that's why I'm talking to them. Cause I can't come in and say, here's the kind of network that the high performers are exhibiting because it requires more time. You've got to start with, here's how you buy that time back. Here's what they're doing to get the efficiencies and then what they're doing out there. But what the research has shown, and I'm standing on the shoulder of legends with Ron Burt and others that found this idea of the non-insular network in the seventies and, and some degree even earlier, we're predictors of performance. What I've seen in my own work with the consortiums has consistently been the second biggest predictor uh, of a high performer is this ability to not have a big network, but network with more of those bridging ties into other pockets of an organization, people with different capabilities, other functions, other geographies, but it, it leads to that awesome question you're asking is, well, what the hell do I do with that? So I know I need a non-insular network, but does it mean that I'm talking to everybody? And if they have different capabilities, I start going to scientific conferences that don't have any relevance to me. And there may be merit in that, but what I was really interested in all the interviews with the high performers. And again, these companies are all top organizations and they're giving me their top performing men and women in each case to talk to, or some of their top performing men and women is how are you doing that? What are you doing? That's building this network. And what I found is they tended to spend about 20 to 25% more time than the average person in exploration, right? So they'd be reaching out, not to the whole world, but to areas that were tangentially relevant to them and saying, gosh, what are the commonalities we have? What are the possibilities of integrating what we do and go to market or deliver a client solution differently or whatever? And so it was a form of networking that wasn't trying to figure out how do I get up the hierarchy to the next step? And it wasn't, I need help right now. It was sowing this foundation of understanding what other people are doing, creating an awareness in your head of what are the possibilities to integrate. And then when those opportunities came by, those people that do that time, spend that time in exploration. They have a much greater platform to produce something bigger. So they're then coming in with a solution. It can be a piece of software code. It can be a, you know, consulting engagement, a financial transaction, but they're integrating and producing a better outcome than those people that don't do it. Those people that are just staying local there. And so the, they're winning, and this is super important to me today, is they're winning not because of access to a hidden power structure. I have no doubt that happens. And especially 
earlier in the decades, I think it did more so than today, but they're winning because they're producing a bigger outcome and they're building a network at the same time that then starts bringing them things right over and they get pulled into things. And so that's on that idea. And there's some other nuance in that chapter around ways they build connections around the work that enable them to scale themselves too. We find they're much more likely not to try to own everything, but to figure out their unique value add and then diffuse ownership so that they get greater engagement from people and their contribution is, is targeted to what they can do well versus owning everything. So they do a bunch of stuff in there that's really giving them scale in their work. And they're actually getting greater impact from the way they're investing that time. And the tie to overload is the very first thing people stop doing when they start to get overwhelmed, right? Is they stop exploring and then they stop looking expansively in that small moment when that opportunity first comes. They, Those micro moments that you talk about. And it's huge. It's huge. I can't tell you the number of times I'm asking these people about, tell me about your career defining accomplishment, right? The thing that got you on this upward trajectory. And then we would go all the way back to the beginning and a huge proportion of them started in these tiny moments that would have been really easy to miss, right? If they hadn't leaned in in a certain way. So that's a little bit of what we see with those people and how they're spending that time. Yeah. When you're, when you're talking about the micro moments, it made me think about just noticing in general and how the art of noticing is something which is lost when one is busy. If you're too busy and too focused, then you just simply don't notice stuff. You step over the dead body to get to the mailbox or whatever, right? You know, cause you're, you're so drilled in and you talk a bit about these energizers and I think. What's interesting about the energizers is that the energizers aren't the people who necessarily conform to what we think of as having the most energy. So like the person who's like the busy person with the six devices and the, like, uh, they're running from meeting to meeting, they've got all this stuff going on. Like they might look like they're full of energy, but they're not the energizers, right. That kind of inspire others to do things. Right. Right. And that's what we looked at. And I, I completely stumbled into that by blind luck too. And this game was, we were the first study I was doing about 20 years ago, looking at the high performers and a major blue chip consulting firm. And this partner was saying, look, I don't think our high performers are distinguished by how smart they are because we get great talent. He said, I think it's people that create buzz for what they're up to. And they get the partners invested in what they're doing. Their clients want to buy more. Their peers help them out when they're in trouble. Their teams give greater effort. And he said, all that has to do not with being slightly smarter, but with being somebody that creates followership, right? Or engagement. And so it fundamentally, we found out in that specific case that being an energizer was four times the predictor of a high performer, successful person as the open network idea. And that's held for over 20 plus years in all sorts of organizations, roughly that order of magnitude over and over again. And to your point, when we map this, it's a very simple question, not abstract. It's just when you interact with some people, you walk away a little bit more enthused, you know, about what you're up to and you see these networks that then can get created and you start to see who the strong energizers are, the people that enthuse others in groups. And you're just as likely to see an extrovert as an introvert be considered a strong energizer by other people. When I interview these people to see what they thought they were doing and then they energized to see what they thought was going on, you would find that you're just as likely to see somebody that's really charismatic. And so it is really low key being energizer in these contexts. So it's very much tied up in a set of behaviors more so than personality or, or cheerleading or things like that. Well, I mean, it's really a story of social contagion and how there are these huge externalities and 
It also says it makes us question performance evaluations in general. When we think about performance evaluations, we generally focus on success that can be attributed to that individual rather than the impact that they have on those around them. And I know like in, in basketball, there was that article, I don't know, 10 years ago about Shane Battier, right? Remember, his, you remember that? I don't know if you remember the article in the New York Times, but you know how he, he had like two points a game, but everyone else was better. I guess we're only now, I, I don't know whether we have similar models for employees, but you talk about the de-energizers and how they leave a, a wake of despair <laughs> in their path. And the sad thing is that those de-energizers, it's not their inherent nature. It's usually they're like, they've been traumatized by something, right? It could be that they've been traumatized by a toxic boss that is having ricochet effects downstream. How can we kind of evaluate and I don't mean evaluating employees as individuals, but you know, how do we evaluate what people are doing and the impact that they're having on others? Is there a way that we can do this in a more rigorous and scientific way? Yeah. So one of the interesting things when I'm looking at energy, it's never the case that I'm going back and saying this person is, is an energizer per se. What I'm interested in is saying, or a de-energizer in particular, what I'm interested in is saying, look, you have 43 leaders at this level that are sucking the life out of the place, right? And so what can this group learn to do differently that would have a disproportionate impact? So we're super cautious, if you will, of the, the privacy implications of this and making sure that you don't reveal things that you don't want about people. But what's interesting in that is number one, I had been convinced from the very beginning, that de-energizers, that was just how God put them on the earth and they were born, not made. And then we have massive data sets on this over time because people, organizations may do this once a year or other things like that. And I had somebody come in a couple of years back and look at it. And, and to your point, we found that something like 90 plus percent of the time, she found that the extreme de-energizers at time period 10, they were energizers started out right as, at time period one and something kind of went wrong. And so I think it's a really important thing to be looking for. I, I believe it's either a toxic leader failures that weren't handled well things like that kind of start that downward pivot. But I also find that it's incredibly behavioral and there's nine really specific things that these people do, none of which are earth shattering, but they tend to do them more systematically when they're under stress or pressure than the rest of us. And they, that consistency is what makes them energizers. And you can coach people against that, right? And have them think about it for themselves. But the really powerful thing is to set that list of nine down in front of your team and say, look, these things matter. What do we want to hold ourselves accountable for? And it just that easy conversation puts a little upward pressure on getting people to think about how am I showing up in a way that maintains momentum behind things. So I think things like that are probably the most productive ways to get the ideas into play without going to a point of where you're saying, okay, Rob's a de-energizer. Well, and sometimes it's the most engaged people that then become the most disengaged because they're the ones that like care the most and then ultimately either get disappointed or run into their own limitations more quickly. And that's the challenge again in the connections, right? Because they have a really big impact. That's one of the challenges right now with the return to office strategies is the companies are struggling with strategies that bring people back. And if you remember what we were talking about earlier with the pandemic, a lot of these people that were most influential in these networks have suddenly figured out there's a different way to live their lives. They're not in that echo chamber. And so they're in this bizarre position of saying, okay, Whatever strategy we have that's going to push some of these people back and maybe turn them from energizers to de-energizers because suddenly they've lost two and a half hours of their, their life, plus the work hasn't changed now. Then you've got this really negative impact of either they leave 
or as one person was saying, worse yet, they stay and they're ticked off, yeah, yeah. right? And they're, they're propagating negativity there. Well, I think the last topic of your book is one that really, some people might say it's about work-life balance, but I think what you're describing is how there's a feedback loop between kind of your ability to cultivate your relationships and your network outside of work and how that flows back into your engagement with work and, and productivity with work. And, and I think that the takeaway, the net lesson is that if you are too immersed in work and lack these other connections, you will ultimately fail to perform optimally at work. But I thought there was a bigger question buried in there, which was, do a lot of these principles that you apply in the workplace about how to manage your time and your networks and relationships, can we apply them equally to your to your family life? Can you become burned out with your family if you don't know how to manage the tasks of your children and, you know, loved ones? Should we be thinking about using the same techniques in both domains so that we don't let the burnout happen in either one of them? Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of overlap, right? The second thing you stop doing when you allow overload to happen is be an energizer. You don't come into situations thinking about how do I get followership and engagement and what I'm up to? How do we reframe things in a way that everybody sees how they contribute? You come in saying, I need these three things done. And now you think about, okay, as a parent, when I'm overwhelmed and stressed, do I come into my house and talk to my children in a way that's getting followership and engagement, or do I come in saying, I need these three things done, right? And we've all had the bad parent moments when you're under pressure and you're like, boom, 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 and, and it doesn't work. And so there's a really, the biggest thing that I found about these people, I call my 10 percenters and they're just, they're outperforming like crazy, but they're living life more on their terms is they are really dogmatic about maintaining dimensionality in their lives. And by that, I mean, they're far more likely to have at least two and usually three groups outside of work that are a big part of their life. And this can take the form of athletic groups like soccer or running. They can take the form of religious affiliations, book clubs, music, all sorts of different hobbies. What it does is it allows these people to have and maintain an identity that's broader than work. They're runners, they're lay people in their church, they're civically minded people, and they're around all these other people that are coming at life from different perspectives. And so suddenly they're sharing ideas and thoughts with a male person or a bricklayer or whatever that they just don't get in their lives, right? At work, at work, they become very unidimensional. If I had one thought that I'd leave everybody with on this is that's in my mind, the single most important thing you can do is maintain that dimensionality, not by yourself and running alone in the morning, but by engaging with another group, because it, it enables you to go through and you experience the vagaries of work differently. You just don't get caught up in the minutiae as much. When I would hear people that just had really horrendous stories of their careers <laughs> and kind of had fallen into a defensive posture, usually that's what had happened. They'd allowed work to slowly take over and they'd abandon those groups and they couldn't get back in. And usually it happens, it starts happening mid thirties, right? As, as work and life takes over. So that'd be the kind of the last thought I guess I'd leave with people. <laughs> but I think the important thing is that, that it's not simply just about having stress buffers so that you can let off steam. It's really more about, as you say, maintaining this kind of dimensionality and, uh, right. It's not just venting like that's a, it can be a piece of how we handle this, but there's too much of it coming at us today. And you just take one issue that, that bothers you at work, unpacking that with somebody and explaining all the interdependencies. And then allowing a little empathy to come in and then maybe an idea or two, that's an hour discussion, right? And let's say we get hit with 10 of these things each day now because of all the modalities. Nobody wants to hear it. You know what I mean? And so a part of this game is not about venting and common sense there, but it's about how do you rise above it? 
Right. How do you engage? Venting's a great way to get kicked out of your soccer league. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rob, this has been fantastic. I think we barely even scratched the surface of this book. So everybody check out Beyond Collaboration Overload, Rob Cross. Great chatting with you. Hope to see you in person sometime soon. Thanks so much. I would love to. I would love to, Greg. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.